coming up on the Tempest Archives. We dive into a story involving drama and depths. In fact, the drama takes place at depth. It's submarine surgery in mid-World War II. The storm that's about to break is a tempest in a teacup. This time on the Tempest Archives. If you had asked the admirals in charge of the Pacific Fleet of the United States Navy what their biggest problems were, and you'd pose that question to them on December 6th, 1941, they would have given you a very different answer set to the one they would give you if you asked that question on December 8th, 1941. Because, of course, what happened in the middle was one of the most famed surprise attacks in all of history. In a shocking, horrifying, and nigh-invincible surprise attack, the Japanese Navy sails to a point not terribly far from Pearl Harbor, launches a whole bunch of fighters and torpedo planes and bombers. Those planes fly into Pearl Harbor. And by the time they fly out of it, multiple U.S. warships are left as smoking devastations. Things have sunk. Ships have turned over. People are dying. And the belt armor that is built into their vessels that is supposed to keep them from getting torpedoed is now keeping them from getting rescued because that's the same armor that the crews working desperately to save them now have to cut through to try to get them out before they run out of air. The U.S. surface fleet in the Pacific is largely devastated. Now, If you're familiar with the story, as seen from the American perspective, of the way the beginning of the Second World War starts for them, you notice a few things. Number one, the efforts of engineers, the Seabees, as they are affectionately known, is noted to be heroic. They are cutting people out of ships, they are doing repairs, they are getting ships underway that have no right after the bombings and and devastations that they've suffered to be able to be underway. That's the first thing you would notice. The second thing you would notice is that, pretty famously, the U.S. aircraft carriers of the Pacific Fleet happened to not be in Pearl Harbor on the morning of the attack. It was an accident of the calendar. They were pulling out of Pearl to go back to the States to celebrate Christmas in California. They were not there when the bombs struck home. They are spared, and because of that, U.S. Navy efforts in the Pacific might be spared as a whole. What you probably don't know, because this is not widely discussed about the Pearl Harbor attack, is that another element of the U.S. Pacific Fleet was spared. On December 7th, 1941, 
the U.S. submarine fleet. It's hardly impacted by the Pearl Harbor attack at all. It's another one of those little accidents of history. And as the war gets underway, going into 1942, the U.S. Navy is rebuilding ships as fast as they can. They're repairing what they have. They're trying to make a battle plan to go up against the Japanese fleet. The U.S. submarine service doesn't get a whole lot of press for their actions during the Second World War. And it's really fascinating because you can take a really similar parallel to the way the U.S. will use its submarine service. And you hear all about the way another country uses their submarines. The Germans, like the Americans, are using their submarines to go after shipping targets. In the Atlantic, it is the U-boat versus the convoy, hopefully with a couple of armed destroyers, circling around it, trying to catch and sink the U-boats before the U-boats can catch and sink troop carriers, um, carriers of food, munitions, tanks, equipment, artillery. The U.S. is trying to supply Britain desperately. Britain is an island nation. If something doesn't get to them by sea, at this point, it's not going to get to them. Even the heavy bombers of the era don't have the range, for the most part, to make it from the east coast of the United States to the west coast of Britain. If something's going to get to the UK, it's going to happen by ship. And the US is actively engaged, even at the start of the war, in supplying our ally nation. Of course, before war is declared uh, on the U.S. by Germany, it's kind of a wink-wink, nudge-nudge. But after uh, Germany declares war on the U.S., it is just outright. The U.S. is actively supplying Britain because they're an island nation. They are trapped. They don't have the land resources to produce what they need. They have to bring it in from somewhere. The U-boats is Germany's best attempt to strangle the United Kingdom in the cradle. Now, I don't know if referring to a empire that was so large that it was proverbially said that the sun never set on the British Empire, I don't know if referring to that as being in the cradle is quite appropriate. But the U-boat service gets a lot of press because it causes all of these logistical headaches for the Allies trying to get food, munitions, troops, equipment, from one side of the ocean to the other. What doesn't get a whole lot of press is the way Americans will use their submarines to do exactly the same thing. Now, as 1942 pushes on, the Battle of Midway will start to change the tide in how the war is fought in the Pacific, But if you look at middle of 1942, right around the time of the Battle of Midway, the Japanese Empire is really starting to become a significant empire. They've taken a ton of territories from Allied powers, from the U.S., from the U.K., 
from France. They are trying to secure economic independence. But just like Britain, Japan has a vulnerability. They're an island nation. Which means when they want to move things between, say, one attack point and another, or they're trying to get fuel out of the ground through a refining process and back to the homeland, well, those things have to travel by sea. And the U.S. will use their submarines the same way the Germans would to go after specifically Japanese shipping. Now, as the war progresses and the U.S. Navy is able to access places like Australia, the U.S. will base a number of submarines out of Brisbane and have them just sail thousand miles or so up north to go play havoc with Japanese shipping. Now, we don't hear about this as much as we probably should, as much as the actions of these sub-commanders probably deserve, because this isn't a war-winning or war-losing strategy for the Allies. You're still going to have to pack up a whole bunch of Marines and a whole bunch of Army personnel and go and invade a whole bunch of places in order for the war to end. But in the meantime... If these sub-commanders can play havoc with Japanese shipping, if they can sink troop ships, every troop ship that goes down is 1,000, 1,500, 2,000 enemy soldiers that the Marines never have to fight at all. Every oil tanker is hundreds of miles, if not thousands of miles, that the Japanese Navy can't sail because they don't have the resources. Oil is so important to the Japanese economy at this point, and they don't have enough of it. They never have enough of it through the war. Oil is so important that it's a huge part of why they launched this war in the first place. Because the fleet was burning more fuel than the Japanese were able to bring in and process with the land and resources that they had, and part of this whole expansion is to secure a stable source of petroleum. Petrosecurity is one of the many factors, and it is many factors, that play into this Japanese expansionism. Enter the U.S. submarines. Now, there are many tales of... Daring do, many tales of uh, bravery and tales of terror, tales of being, you know, sitting at the bottom of the ocean, just above the depth at which the, the sea will crush the submarine, and hearing the depth charges fall all around you. That's part of this theater of war, and it doesn't really get talked about. But one thing that's really fascinating. And the, the piece of the story that I want to dive into is a little bit of medical history that happened in this incredibly dramatic backdrop. It is the rash 
of pharmacists' mates at the end of 1942 who are willing to violate orders, risk getting thrown in jail, go way outside the scope of their training and way outside the scope of their practice, risk their career, and a lot of these guys are career Navy. They're not people who signed up in 1941 for the duration plus six months. These are guys who signed up in 1936 and have been in the Navy for six years before they even get to this submarine action that we're going to talk about. So these are people who want the Navy to be the thing they do for the rest of their lives. They're going to risk everything to save the lives of some of their crewmen. Because here's the thing. These patrols are extremely dangerous. And they're extremely dangerous in a life-and-death sense, because at any point you can be discovered by a Japanese patrol and be depth-charged or sunk, or you can have a mechanical breakdown and uh, the ship, the sub can just go to the bottom and keep going down and down and down and down and down until it cracks. But one of the weird elements of submarine warfare in this time and in this place is submarines are not actually subject to all that many surgical-level battle casualties that could be caused by the enemy. While most submarines of this era, and the U.S. ones included, will have a gun on the deck, they will often use that uh, to shell enemy uh, positions on land. For example, they will use that to shell enemy ships if they're far enough away. But a submarine isn't going to stick around and take a whole lot of fire. You are unlikely to find an instance in which a shell from a naval gun will, say, punch through the side of the ship and critically injure some sailors without taking out the entire sub. And the whole, I mean, the reason is really simple. If a submarine has a crack in the pressure hull, if the pressure hull breaks while the sub is underwater, the sub is likely to implode, depending on the depth that they're at, and everybody's going to die. So on these patrols, you either have a sub come back with all of its crew, or you and everybody's relatively intact, or the sub doesn't come back at all. So one of the things that the submarine service knows is even though you have an isolated group of sailors, you don't need to put a doctor on a submarine. You don't need to take one of the small handful of naval surgeons and deploy them out on submarines. Because you don't tend to get the kind of wounded who are going to need a surgeon, and you don't have a facility for it anyway. And if one person's going to get hurt surgically, you are likely to lose the entire sub anyway. Now, most ships, most surface ships, don't have a doctor or a surgeon on board. Some of them do. Most of them don't. But it's easier to get somebody onto a smaller boat and off to the, to the one boat in the fleet that's got a surgeon on it from the deck of a destroyer than it is from the inside of a submarine. 
But at the same time, people get injured on submarines all the time. I was reading an article about the kinds of injuries that sailors would sustain on submarines of this era. And there are a couple of things uh, that seem to be major causes of injury. Number one is these spaces are just incredibly tight. Spaces at an absolute premium on a sub. You can hit your head. You can you know uh, get rocked by a depth charge and break an arm. There are all kinds of mechanical injuries like that. But the other thing is the hatches that connect you know, the pressure hull of the submarine to the sail, the part of the submarine that would stick out above the water if the submarine were at the surface, or um, just out onto the deck, those hatches are only about 24 inches wide. And if the sub has to do a crash dive with anybody on the surface of the boat, people are scrambling down those hatches, ribs get crushed, arms get broken, people twist their ankles coming down the ladder, And there's a lot of different things that can happen. So you need medical people on a submarine, but you don't need a physician on a submarine. So the Navy will do the smart thing, the reasonable thing for that situation, and have a compromise. Now, there are a couple of different types of corpsmen in the United States Navy. Um, The Marines don't have medical specialists at all. They rely on the Navy corpsmen to deploy with the Marines. But also, there's a rating called a pharmacist's mate. Kind of an apprentice to a pharmacist, but not somebody with a doctor. Not a doctorate of pharmacy, not a doctorate of medicine. Just someone who is trained medically alongside these people. Trained in first aid you know, uh, trained in basic general health, because keep in mind, you've got sailors out to sea for weeks at a time. That will mean things like knowing how to treat gonorrhea. That will mean things like knowing how to treat broken bones, knowing how to uh, help people who have become constipated. Water is always at a premium on subs of this era. If you're not drinking a lot of water and you're eating the kinds of foods that are easy to pack into a submarine, it's very easy to get, well, constipated. In fact, I'm just going to quote from a 1953 document by the U.S. government printing office, quote, Constipation was an occasional condition among submarine personnel. It was most common in the first two weeks of a cruise. One pharmacist's mate, during a 56-day patrol with a crew of approximately 75 men, dispensed three quarts of mineral oil, one pint of castor oil, two pounds of sidelitz powder, three bottles of cascara sagrada, and 20 soap suds enemas. So that tells you the kind of thing that these pharmacist mates are going to be dealing with on a regular basis. Right? It's the routine health stuff above and beyond the combat injuries or the dive injuries or just the life in a cramped space injuries that these crewmen are going to go through. But there's one thing that every sailor on a sub is kind of terrified of. In addition to all of the other terrible things that can happen to you in wartime, appendicitis is a life-threatening medical condition that can develop basically at any time, is difficult to prevent, 
and is difficult to treat. And it can rapidly kill you. And this is not an unknown problem. In fact, prior to the war, there's at least one admiral who uh, suggests that all people, all men assigned to the submarine service in his squadron, should have their appendixes removed before they're put on a boat. In other words, he doesn't even want you out at sea if you haven't had your appendix out yet. That's how seriously the Navy takes this problem. But you can't put a surgeon on on every submarine, and appendicitis is, of course, a surgical emergency when it happens, and when it gets bad. Now, it's worth going over for just a minute what appendicitis is. Appendicitis is an infection and inflammation of the appendix. The appendix is essentially a little sac that is attached to the colon. Now, under normal circumstances, it doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, It was thought for a long time to just be a vestigial uh, part of the body, a part of the body that we don't really need, that is a evolutionary holdover from a time when maybe it did something from when our ancestors uh, ate a particular diet and now we don't anymore. More modern medical theorists uh, look at the appendix and say, hey, it actually does play a role in immune response and we don't really understand that res- that uh, role yet. So it may not be quite as optional as it appears to people in this day, but most of the time you never notice it doesn't do a whole lot for you. When it gets infected, it can absolutely kill you and I can do it quickly. The classic signs of appendicitis would be uh, tenderness in the abdomen, abdominal pain. Um, If someone is constantly flexing their right leg to try and give them relief from their belly pain, that's a big worry sign. Uh, If there's a, a very particular symptom called rebound tenderness, where when you put pressure over the right lower quadrant of the abdomen, when you put the pressure on the patient, doesn't hurt. When you take the pressure off, it hurts like hell. That is a big red flag. All of these signs and symptoms are known about at the time. And this is one of those things that everybody at the time would have known somebody who had their appendix out. It was much more common in this era than it seems to be now. Long story less long, the fear is what happens if somebody comes down with appendicitis, the bad kind of appendicitis, when you're out to sea in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, surrounded by Japanese warships, without a surgeon around. Well, on September 11th, 1942... That is exactly what happens to one Mr. Dean Rector. He's a seaman first class of the U.S. Navy. He is a submariner on the USS Sea Dragon. And he reports to pharmacist's mate, Wheeler B. Lipes, Hey, Doc, I'm having some trouble. I'm having some stomach pain. I think I need a laxative. And Lipes looks at this guy and goes, You need to lie the hell down. Now, I think it's touching that the first thing Leibs does is go stand this guy's watch for him so that the crew isn't shorthanded. But when he comes back around, 
and he's checking on the patient, he's definitely looking worse. He's flexing his leg. He's got that lower right quadrant abdominal pain. And Leips figures he's got a case of appendicitis on his hands. Now, if this were happening at peacetime, if this were happening in friendly waters, if this happened 500 miles out of Pearl Harbor, where the U.S. has control of the sea, Commander Farrell would have some options. The best one would be for him to surface the boat, hoist up the radio mast, and call for a sea lift. Now, a sea lift is when you take one of those water planes, you know, the kind that can take off and land on the water. They've, they've got, like, big buoyant skis, essentially. Have one of those fly out from the nearest base or off the nearest carrier. Have them land on the water. Get a little boat. Bring the crewman out. Put him in the boat. Bring him out to the airplane. Have that uh, plane load him up. Fly him either to a... Uh, nearby vessel that can take him or back to a base on land where he can be seen in a hospital. But it's not peacetime, and it's not friendly waters. He's off the shores of Indonesia. He's a thousand miles from the nearest friendly base, so a couple of risks get taken if you start behaving the same way, don't they? Number one, you got to surface the submarine. Now, during daytime, surfacing a submarine in enemy waters is extremely dangerous. Submarines move faster on the surface, but they're also visible on the surface. And once they're spotted, they're easy to hunt. So he doesn't want to bring the sub up to the surface anyway. And number two, the act of radioing back to base could give him away completely. There's the ever-present worry of what if the enemy has cracked our communication codes. The U.S. Navy is famous for doing this, so is uh, the Royal Navy, so are uh, the British intelligence services during the war of cracking enemy codes. But there's nothing saying that the Japanese can't at some point crack U.S. naval codes. So there's nothing saying if you call in your position that the enemy can't read it and decrypt it. That's option number one. Option number two is... Even without knowing what the message says, if you get picked up by the wrong kind of equipment, or in if you're looking at this from the Japanese perspective, the right kind of equipment, it's relatively simple to pinpoint where a radio transmission comes from. The Allies have been doing this against the wolf packs in the Atlantic for years now. Uh, the, the technology is called HuffDuff. High-frequency direction finding. You can pinpoint the angle and the distance of a transmission source using a radio tower. So you can't risk transmitting back when you're so deep into enemy waters. Not only that, if he were to do that, even if the enemy didn't pick up the radio transmission, even if they didn't find the boat based on the radio transmission... Farrell would have to wait on the surface for this seaplane to come by to come pick this guy up, and he has no idea how close that would be. 
So that's option one that's gone. He can't call in a sea lift. Option two would be go back to base. Well, let's do a little bit of long division here. If he's only a thousand miles from Brisbane, he was probably further than that, but let's say he's only a thousand miles from Brisbane. Well, these submarines can make about 18 knots when they're on the surface, which means he can move at about 20 miles an hour back to Brisbane. Which means, if my math is correct, it would take him at least 50 hours to return back to port. It's entirely possible that the patient dies during that 50 hours. More than that, Farrell has to make this decision of, do we go back, do we keep going at sea, in the context of a war? How many sailors is it worth if you're able to sink a troop ship. If you can sink 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 of the enemy's troops on a ship, if you can take one of those to the bottom in your entire patrol, is it worth losing one guy and a crew of 75? Should every submarine patrol end the first time somebody isn't well? And this isn't any different from his point of view, than a combat casualty. And the hard truth, one of the hardest truths, is that sailors die. Soldiers die. But Farrell isn't about to risk the other 70 people on the boat just for this one guy. Now, I imagine that is a heartbreaking decision for a man who cares about his crew. At the same time, though, this puts Wheeler B. Lipes, the pharmacist's mate who's taking care of this kid, and he is a kid, he is 19. In fact, this whole thing takes place on or about his 19th birthday. So there's that component to it. Puts Leip's in a really tough spot, doesn't it? Now, here's where Leip's is coming from. Again, this is somebody who is, has wanted all his life to be a doctor. Was sickly as a kid. He's only about five foot two, which makes him perfectly sized for the submarine service, because those ships are not large. Signed up to the Navy in 1936. Uh, he is reportedly 16 when he joins the Navy to become a pharmacist's mate, has trained in multiple hospitals, he's been in ORs, he's done all kinds of medical work, serving sick and injured sailors. What he's not is a surgeon. What he's not is equipped like a surgeon. but he's definitely been in the OR when appendectomies have happened. He's got a copy of a book that is still famous in the medical community. It's called The Merck Manual. And he and Farrell 
have a little bit of a conversation. This is how historian Jan K. Herman describes the situation. As Rector's condition worsened, Leips informed the skipper and the executive officer that his patient had appendicitis. Farrell then talked to Rector, explaining that there were no doctors around. Rector responded with, Whatever Leips wants to do is okay with me. Rector, of course, being the poor guy who is at risk of part of his body exploding. Farrell asked Leips what he was going to do. Nothing, the corpsman replied. Taken aback, Farrell then lectured Leips about his responsibilities. Quote, I fire torpedoes every day, and some of them miss, he reminded the corpsman. Leips responded, quote, I told him that I couldn't fire this torpedo and miss. When Farrell asked Leips if he could do the surgery, the corpsman said he could, but that the odds were against him, and that such surgeries, even conducted in well-equipped hospitals, were often not successful. However, quote, if that's what I'm ordered to do, that's what I'll do. Now, I don't know how many of the people listening to this have spent any time in military or paramilitary yes or no sir organizations. And of course, those who have know that it's much, often much more complicated than yes sir, no sir. Here's the predicament that Leipzig is in. Uh, and I've, I've felt a similar predicament, very different circumstances, but I was a paramedic for about 15 years. And for, for a good nine of that, I was part of a well-known fire department. And what that means is it had a very military structure. I reported to a lieutenant. The lieutenant reported to a captain. The captain reported to a chief. There were orders that came from our medical directors. There were orders that came from our lieutenants. So I get where he's coming from when he says this line, if that's what I'm ordered to do, that's what I'll do. Here's the quandary. Leips absolutely does not have the authority of the Navy to perform a surgery on a submarine. He's not equipped for it. He doesn't have the implements. He doesn't have the training. He's not a doctor. He doesn't have a medical license. He never, he's never gone to medical school. He's not qualified on paper. But he's been in the room for a whole bunch of these. In fact, before he left the hospital to redeploy to the submarine service, one of the surgeons reportedly pulled him aside and walked him through exactly how to do an appendectomy because everybody knew this was going to be a vulnerability of the submarine service. He even got the advice, quote, never use a purse string on an appendectomy, end quote. A purse string is a type of suture. He's getting blow-by-blow blow details of what to do and what not to do if you ever have to do this. So smart people in the Navy have thought through, hey, this is something that you're absolutely going to run into. The problem is, no one's ever done it before. 
and it is expressly forbidden in Navy rules at the time. If he does this procedure, if he goes ahead, even being ordered by his captain or by his commanding officer, if he does this, if he does this in Pearl Harbor, if he does this in, you know, at, in, at the Washington Navy Yard, if he does this surgery there, he is guilty of a crime. Practicing medicine without a license is a crime. Paramedics have gone to jail for it. Well after the story has been told. This is a career man who's about to do something that's going to risk his entire career, risk his liberty, and I don't just mean his past to get off the ship, I mean he could be taken off the ship, thrown in the brig, court-martialed, and go to Leavenworth. That's what this guy is risking by even having this conversation. So when he says, if that's what I'm ordered to do, that's what I'll do, He's trying to get somebody else to take a little bit of the responsibility here. And I don't think you can blame him, because this has never been done. Here, here's a, a rough idea of what he's working with. Quote, and this is also from Submarine Surgeon, quote, I had no blood pressure apparatus. I had no access to a laboratory. I couldn't do a blood count. I couldn't do a urinalysis. I sure didn't have a microscope. I had no intravenous fluid, no nothing. Submarines went to sea without adequate equipment and support, and with very few basics, Lipes recalled. He's got scalpel blades, but he doesn't have a handle for a scalpel. He's got hemostats, and he has to use hemostats to hold the blade for his scalpel. He's got no space for this. But he's going to do it, because if he doesn't do it, this guy's going to die. And so he commandeers the officer's wardroom, the uh, place where the uh, leadership staff of the, of the boat can sit and really only sit. Uh, it, it literally is described in one of the places I was looking at this as, as the kind of space where you had to sit to get in the room. You could be upright only if you were kneeling. But it's got a table. They bring in lights. And, well, just like a lot of things on a submarine, they improvised. Quote, His instruments would be bent spoon handles for retractors, an inverted T-strainer lined with gauze as an anesthesia mask, a scalpel blade with a hemostat for a handle, and ample quantities of alcohol milked from torpedo fuel tanks for sterilization. Fortunately, Lipes had smuggled several cans of ether aboard, figuring they might come in handy for emergencies. The anesthetic would be carefully dripped onto the T-strainer by another crew member, one of several who volunteered for the operating team. End quote. One other thing he doesn't have, by the way, is antibiotics. There's no penicillin on the boat. If you told a 21st century surgeon to do an appendectomy without any antibiotics, they would laugh in your face. What he did have was sulfa. And he would take some sulfa tablets and grind them into a powder 
and put them in the oven to kill any spores. So Commander Farrell dives the boat. Surface of the, of the sea is not calm. You want as much calm as you can get for an operating theater. They bring in lights that they usually use to load torpedoes by on land if they're doing night loading. They bring those into the operating room, excuse me, the officer's wardroom. The surgical team is made up of whoever he's got around. There's a great quote from uh, George Wheeler, who wrote an article about this immediately after the sub returned from patrol, where he points out that everybody standing around Lipes, all the officers in the wardroom, are older than him. He's performing surgery, and he's the second youngest in the room. The youngest is, of course, the patient. But, sterilizes the site, he opens the abdomen, and he goes into the belly, and the appendix isn't where it should be. To quote an oral history from Lipes, quote, I thought, oh my god, is this guy reversed? As in situs inversus, a uh, medical condition in which certain uh, anatomical marks are just flip-flopped left to right in the human body. You should be able to find the appendix very quickly. I slipped my fingers down under the sesum, the blind gut, and I could feel the appendix. It was five inches long, adhered, coiled, and buried down at the distal tip, and the distal tip was turning black. It was gangrenous. What luck, I thought. My first one couldn't be easy. Lipes then goes about the process of the surgery, cauterizes the stump with phenol, carbolic acid, neutralize the carbolic acid with torpedo alcohol, use the sulfa that he had sterilized, drips the powder over the actual site, and closes his incision. The crewman would be back on duty in less than two weeks, and the patrol would finish with a ominous and playful report back. Submarine transmissions tend to be brief from this era. Again, risk of being caught, identified by enemy ships. But there will be a famous message back. One merchant ship, one oil tanker, one successful appendectomy. When Lipes gets back from the end of a successful patrol with his patient having lived, he's not really sure what's going to happen to him. Because at this point, he's got conflicting signals from different aspects of the Navy. The Bureau of Medical Personnel, UMED, they're going to have one opinion about this because they're the ones who control what Lipes is and is not allowed to do as a pharmacist's mate. UMED is going to have one opinion. But the people who are serving in the submarine service are going to have a very different opinion about what Lipes did because they want to know that A, their, their people are getting taken care of, or B, if they're serving on a sub, they want to know that someone's willing to go to bat that they might live. 
Reportedly, when Sea Dragon comes back from her patrol, uh, Lipes actually gets pulled aside by the admiral in charge of the submarine squadron and has a very kindly conversation about what happened. Now, nobody in this situation tries to cover up what was done. There's no attempt to hide the fact that Lipes went well outside of his scope of practice. But there's two ways to look at that, right? If you are looking at this in how we describe the actions of soldiers when we're giving out things like commendations or the actions of sailors, you might say that Lipes went above and beyond the call of duty. His call of duty in this moment was to watch his crewmate die. He went above and beyond that, but also he violated orders. And there's going to be consequences for that. So Lipes meets with the squadron commander, the, the, uh, the medical officer for the submarine squadron. I believe it's Squadron 2. There's a report from Squadron 2 back to the Bureau of Medical Personnel. Um, it's Unfortunately, it's difficult to know who actually wrote it. But the squadron report is interesting. It goes through the details of the surgery, goes through the details of what was done, why, you know, kind of the major blow-by-blow, in a very surgical manner. You could, if, when you read the actual document, it reads like a lot of the surgeon's notes that I've read. So it's clearly meant to speak from one medical person to another. But when this is reported back to the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery, the commander of the subsquadron writes as, as his final point of the memo, Four, while it is by no means desirable to encourage major surgical procedures on naval personnel by other than qualified surgeons, yet in this particular instance, it appears that deliberation and cautious restraint preceded the operation. The operation was performed under difficult circumstances and with pioneering fortitude and resourcefulness, and that the result was entirely satisfactory. So here's the commander of subsquadron two. Basically going to bat for Lipes in the administrative war that's going to follow. That's one arm of trying to give Lipes a little bit of protection. Apparently, when the uh, head of the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery hears about this, he basically loses a gasket. He is outraged that someone would have the gall and the audacity to try to do the work of a surgeon when you are absolutely not qualified. And to be clear, like we've said before, Lipes is not qualified for what he's done. He's tried to get a little bit of cover from his commanding officer by essentially framing it as, if you order me to do this, I'll do it. It's not my idea, boss. I was just following orders. That's what he wants to be able to say when this comes up, because he knows it's going to come up. The admiral in charge of the squadron is trying to give him some cover. But it's actually the press and the media that gives Lipes the most cover. Now, there's a journalist by the name of George Weller. I think I incorrectly gave his name as Wheeler before. George Weller is a reporter 
who is filing stories back to the U.S. about the actions of the U.S. naval squadrons in the South Pacific. He's in a position where he knows that something weird happened with Sea Dragon's patrol. He had caught wind, just hanging out on the base, of this weird report that came back that said, one merchant ship, one oil tanker, one successful appendectomy. And he wants the scoop. And the commander of the second submarine squadron, who's trying to give Leipzig, it seems, a little bit of cover, wants Wheeler to get the scoop. And so they put Leipzig and Wheeler and Commander Farrell in a room, and they give him the entire story. And he writes a phenomenal article that is published on December 14th, 1942. So this is after the patrol has come back. It's about two or three months after the incident itself, but the bureaucracy of the Navy hasn't caught up to Leipzig yet. Remember, the admiral in charge of the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery wants this guy court-martialed. But Weller files his report, files his article, and it makes national news. He will actually wind up winning the 1943 Pulitzer Prize for Journalism for this article, because he walks through what the surgery was like. Now, there are what appear to an outside observer to be uh, little embellishments, but don't we all embellish things when we're telling stories? Isn't that the nature of storytelling, particularly in wartime? And if you read this article, and you actually can, it is uh, free for uh, reading on Wikimedia. Um, it, is a, uh, it is in the public domain at this point. It's a really strong, good account. And it frames everybody who's doing this in this positive, heroic light. It talks about the difficulty. It talks about um, you know, the, the risk that this sailor was under. But now, and this has to be a little bit more imagined, but this is how I perceive this. So take this with a grain of salt, because this is one of those areas I don't have a huge number of sources. Now the Navy is trapped in an administrative catch-22. And the catch-22 is the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery wants to court-martial Lipes. Because he did this thing he's never supposed to do. On the flip side of that, you've now got national news articles painting Leipz as a hero. It's 1942. The Navy's trying to recruit. Medical personnel require additional training. You can't just put somebody through basic and put them on a submarine and say, hey, here you go, you're a pharmacist's mate on a submarine now. They need a lot of extra training. They need to spend time rotating in hospitals. They need to have a special medical education on top of being a sailor, on top of going to a submarine school. So you can't just replace these people. They're difficult to replace because they have a lot of training invested in them. And more to the point, if you then try to court-martial somebody for doing what is publicly perceived as a good deed, the Navy looks like the bad guy. They can't afford to not be recruiting. They can't afford to look like the bad guy. 
So what do you do? Well, the answer is... Apparently, nothing. The court-martial that has been looming over life since he returned from this patrol never materializes. Now, I want to go back to that squadron report. Back to the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. Because the concern among a lot of the leadership is, it worked this one time, but we don't want to see this happening over and over again. The, in fact, the beginning of the section that we quoted earlier is, while it is by no means desirable to encourage major surgical procedures on naval personnel by other than qualified surgeons, in other words, let's not have a rash of amateur surgery on our hands, and frankly, I can see the point. This is not something you want happening over and over and over again. But how many sailors do you want to have die of appendicitis? Die of sepsis, screaming in their own submarines alongside crews they have to live with, work with, and believe me, the inside of a submarine is probably going to echo when your crewmate is screaming in pain and dying. How's that going to look for morale? How does that look on the Navy? So I can see it from everybody's perspective here. But once the pharmacist's mates of the submarine service know that this can be done, that you won't be directly hung from the yardarm for trying to do this, and of course that's a little bit of hyperbole, but keep in mind, again, a lot of these guys are career. There will be two additional surgeries at sea, by these, what did we call them before? Trained amateurs? In fact, the day before, and based on the international dateline, it might be the same day that uh, Weller's article comes out. Pharmacist mate Harry Roby will perform an appendectomy on the USS Grayback. And his surgery is actually the hardest of the three, because by the time he gets in there and opens up his patient's abdomen, the appendix is already ruptured and is necrotic. He will do a very similar procedure to Lipes. But the, the management of a ruptured appendix at the time says, actually, if it's already ruptured, leave it in place. So he'll coat it in sulfenamide. Again, still no penicillin, still no uh, it's true antibiotics, but you've got sulfa powder. Coat it in sulfa, rubber band it off, and close the abdomen and hope that this guy doesn't die. His patient takes the longest to recover. It is about two weeks before he's back on his feet and serving his post, but his patient lives. Now, the last of these uh, qualified amateur surgeries will take place on Christmas Eve, 1942. It'll be aboard the USS Silversides, also a sub, also operating in Japanese water. It will be done by pharmacist's mate Thomas A. Moore. Leipzig's surgery goes pretty smoothly. Roby's surgery, even with the ruptured appendix, goes pretty smoothly. 
Moore runs into some problems. And what has been historically about an hour, hour and a half procedure winds up taking more than five hours. Now, like these previous surgeries under the waves, Moore's patient has acute appendicitis. Like the previous surgeries, the commander of the Greyback, whose name is Creed Burlingame, Lieutenant Commander, U.S. Navy, will dive the boat in order to stabilize it against the seas and keep the boat from getting spotted, keep them from having to crash dive in the middle of a surgery. But when Moore opens the abdomen and gets in there and starts getting after the appendix, things get to be a little bit challenging. First things first, Moore uses a different anesthetic strategy than his counterparts. Now, um, this is actually a really good thing. Ether is a liquid that sublimates into a gas, right? So it comes as a liquid, you drop it onto an anesthesia mask, it uh, off-gasses, and that is inhaled by the patient. The problem with ether in an enclosed environment where you don't have great ventilation is that ether can cause others to start to feel the effects, right? Sailors on all of these boats have become dizzy, nauseous. They will try to get up to the surface and vent some of the air when they can when these surgeries are over. Moore doesn't want to start with ether. He's got training in spinal anesthesia. He's done spinal anesthesia before in operating rooms back on the mainland. Again, these are highly trained assistants. So he starts with an injection of lidocaine directly into his patient's spine. That is a very difficult procedure to landmark, but he does it successfully. The patient goes under. The patient in this case, by the way, is a fireman third class name of George Platter. So the patient goes under, Lipes opens the abdomen, he finds the appendix, and he's able to remove it pretty straightforward so far. But then he notices that the patient is bleeding into the abdomen. Now, a bleed in the abdomen can be life-threatening, but they're really hard to find. You just see blood. As far as I'm aware, he doesn't have any suction available, so all he can use to get the blood out is just sponge after sponge after sponge. And of course, by sponge, we mean a couple of pieces of gauze, uh, all of which have to be counted and accounted for, because if you leave a piece of gauze inside a patient, that can absolutely kill somebody. That can uh, cause a horrendous local infection and uh, essentially kill the patient. But the more important problem right now is he doesn't have any way of finding the bleed. So he starts to do a procedure that is known in the surgical world as running the bowel. Now, running the bowel um, means literally pulling the loop of bowel out of the abdomen and visually inspecting it and running it through your hands. There's about four to five feet of the large intestine. That may be uh, an underestimate. But the small intestine is long. It's about 25 feet long. And each inch has to be visually inspected and made sure that this isn't the location that's bleeding, that it hasn't become necrotic, that you don't have a pouch of, uh, you don't have an abscess on the wall of the intestine. It takes time 
even for people who've done it before. Moore has never done it before. He's been in the room when it's been done. I've actually been in the room when it's been done. But it takes some time. And it's detailed work. Now, the lidocaine that he used as a spinal anesthetic for poor George Platter starts to wear off in the middle of him running the bowel. In other words, the patient starts waking up in the middle of surgery. Wasn't supposed to last this long. The anesthetic should have kept him under for the entire time and not risked the submarine, not risked the other crewman falling sick. The other thing about ether is when it builds up into the right concentration, it can explode and cause a fire. Fire is probably the greatest threat to a submarine. Apart from things like depth charges, of course. So he's trying not to use the ether, but the patient's waking up and starting to move and starting to groan. At one point, it is reported that he begs someone to hit him over the head so he can go back under. And in the scramble to get this patient back under, in the scramble to anesthetize him, they'll opt for a lot of the same solutions, right? A tea strainer as a surgical mask, cotton gauze as, uh, you know, as the actual uh, material that will absorb the ether. But the person who is actually applying this is not pharmacist mate Thomas Moore. Moore has his hands full, literally, of the patient's bowels. So, the person who's applying ether has never applied ether before. The patient is scrambling. Everybody's scrambling to hold him down winds up applying too much ether to the mask. Now, this doesn't hurt the patient. patient will go back under. But it does mean that everyone in the room is starting to get dizzy and nauseous. And you start to get the buildup of gases that could potentially lead to a fire. Moore figures out the problem, tells the guy to slow down, gives him the correct rate of administration. The patient goes back under... And Moore proceeds to try to find the source of this bleed, because through all of this, he still hasn't found where this guy is bleeding from. And he's checking, and he's looking, and he's checking, and he's looking, and he finishes running the entire bowel, and he can't find the source of this bleed. It's now multiple hours into what should have been about an hour-long surgery. The patient's still bleeding, and Moore can't find the source. And he runs the bowel again, and he can't find the source. And finally, he decides it looks like a slow enough bleed. The patient isn't dying. By the way, he has no way of measuring the patient's blood pressure, so he doesn't know if this guy's in shock. He has no way of administering blood products. So he has no way of volume resuscitating him anyway. And he he decides, you know what? I'm going to close the abdomen, and we're going to see what happens. And part of the procedure of closing the abdomen is removing everything that went in. We talked about sponges, needing to remove all of the sponges, but there are implements too. You use clamps during this kind of procedure to clamp off blood vessels that you suspect are going to bleed. And as he goes to remove the clamps, he figures out where the bleed came from. One of his clamps slipped. And it turns out that it's actually not a hidden bleed. He didn't accidentally nick a part of the bowel with a scalpel. It's just that a clamp slipped. 
and it's an easy repair. And he does the quick uh, couple of sutures of vascular repair. And he closes the abdomen. What should have been a hour-long procedure has been about five hours. Everyone's exhausted. But the commander is eager to get back on the hunt. It's nighttime now. Nighttime is feasting time for submarines. Easy to spot in the day, hard to spot at night. Gives them the opportunity to go after enemy ships. So as soon as the patient is closed and is moved to one of the officer's bunks to have his post-op recovery period, well, Burlingame goes back on the hunt. Moore is still watching this patient. He's hoping he's going to recover well. And during that post-op period, Silversides will wind up getting chased by a Japanese destroyer and getting depth-charged. So here's Moore huddled over George Platter, trying to keep him from falling out of a bunk as the, as the boat rocks back and forth from the depth charges that are getting thrown at it. It's a wild story. It is a wild and crazy fact that Platter survived. Now, when I originally heard this story, it was from a documentary series about submarine warfare. It was focusing specifically on Moore's surgery, which I think is interesting, uh, rather than focusing on Leipzig's. That documentary posed that Nimitz leaked Platter's story to the media. There are definitely articles that were written about Platter's surgery. Uh, both Platter and Roby would take pictures of their operations that could be filed with those stories. Um, it's a great way to grab headlines. It's a great way to... Uh, prove that things were being done as well as they could possibly be in that situation, and it's a great way to try and get a little bit more of that cover you need, because the implications of this still haven't been sorted out by the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery. It is wild that Wheeler and Roby and Moore performed these surgeries at all. It's even wilder, it is even crazier that all three of these patients lived. And without exception, within two weeks are all back standing posts, serving their sub, serving their crew, serving the Navy, serving the war interests of the United States. I know a lot of surgeons who wouldn't try this. Even now, even if they had a better situation, even if they had better anesthetics. One of my favorite expressions, and I, I learned it only a couple of years ago, uh, the, the, uh, the shortened version is needs must, right? You know, I don't want to do it this way, but needs must. The full expression is, and this is why it's my favorite, needs must when the devil drives. Well, the devil was driving some appendicitis in 1942. And when needs must, these three pharmacists' mates 
took their careers into their own hands, took these patients' lives into their own hands, and successfully performed these surgeries. Now, any one of these could have gone horribly wrong. It's really worth pointing that out. These were not low-risk procedures. They might have been relatively simple. They might have been things that these, these individuals have seen before. But they're not low-risk overall. These were scary things to do. But there's been so much positive coverage of them that the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery feels like they can't go after the sailors who performed them. They feel like they can't discipline these guys for going outside of the bounds of their orders, for breaking orders. Because breaking orders in this case was the same thing as going above and beyond the call of duty. What's interesting is all three of these people would eventually be promoted. One eventually earned a commendation for the actions that they performed as uh, medical personnel in this theater during the Second World War. That doesn't mean it was for these particular actions, though. Uh, Roby is the only one who earns any kind of commendation medal during their service time, and I believe it's for actions other than the surgery he performed. All three of them will say that their career advancement was limited by the reputation they earned with the Bureau of Medicine and Surgery for doing this. And in 1943, the Navy issues clearer orders that you, thou shalt not perform surgery on a submarine, clearer orders that the way to manage acute appendicitis on a submarine at sea is what's known as conservative management, i.e. keep warm, keep comfortable, uh, that kind of thing. But no one's going to get court-martialed over this. Now, the Navy decides that they don't want this to happen again under any circumstances. They've already seen three of them. One of them could have, I mean, any of them could have gone catastrophically wrong for the patient. One of them could have gone catastrophically wrong for the silver sides. And more to the point, they don't want these pharmacists made succeeding their orders, so they clarify the orders. And in 1943, the orders change to dictate a conservative treatment methodology. Uh, conservative basically means try not to do anything too aggressive, which essentially means keep people comfortable. And they expressly forbid surgery under any circumstances on U.S. naval submarines. The first person to break a story about this, George Weller, wins a Pulitzer in 1943 for his reporting of this series of events. The first commendation specifically for these actions that the Navy will issue is in 2005, about 60 years after the war is over. And it's a Navy commendation to Wheeler B. Lipes, who was the first, who was the pioneer who put it, his career on the line. And if you believe him, paid a price forever after in the Navy. He left the Navy in 46, after 10 years of service, to pursue a different life. There is a saying in 
uniformed services and in civilian life as well, that no good deed goes unpunished. And whatever you believe about whether these guys were right or wrong to do the procedures that they did, well, I think they make a pretty fascinating tempest in a teacup. On the next episode of The Tempest Archives, the storm that is a 40-day and 40-night bombardment by coalition forces in the Gulf War coalesces into a massive armored assault against entrenched infantry. And a curious manner of death befalls their opponents. We ask the question... How far should a commander go? How many troops should he risk to save the lives of the opposition's troops? All that and more next time on The Tempest Archives.